We are continuing with James. Even though it's Valentine's Day, we're going to continue on here. I'm sure you'll get plenty of Valentine's messages from Frank and from others, right? Frank is definitely the Valentine kind of guy. But um, did you know Frank just got a new Harley? That is sermon material. It was a religious experience for him on Wednesday night. I saw it in his face. He was transfixed. So it was great. But anyway, we, congratulations, Frank. Yeah, I'm digressing here a little bit. But uh, at any rate, um, yeah, this, this, uh, this book of James is just, um, it's an amazing book. I love it. As I've been getting back into it, I haven't done this study for four or five years. And so getting back into it again, it's just been kind of uh, revelatory in a lot of ways, just being able to go back through these themes and see how closely they connect with uh, just everyday life, and especially with recovery and transformation and so many of the things that we're working through. It's just been amazing to kind of get back into this. And uh, I wanted to start with something that I normally don't do, actually quoting myself here. And it's just that this particular quote sums up so much of what I want to try to get through today. And if we can get this one thing, it changes everything about our lives. And the quote's right at the top of your bulletins. What if heaven, defined as God's acceptance, what if heaven, defined as God's acceptance, is not the end of our journey, but the beginning? That would be really good news. I want you to just think about that for a second. Defining heaven as God's acceptance, defining heaven as God's love, is that fair? Is that fair enough? I mean, what, what is heaven if not being fully accepted, fully incorporated, fully brought into God's love, God's unity, God's presence? To me, that, that is the definition of heaven. But what if that's not the end of our journey? What if that's the beginning of our journey? Because I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying about the good news. The good news is that this kingdom that he works so hard to define and model for us in his life, is not out there someplace. We can't go to it. We can't attain it. It's nothing that we can find by observation. It's nothing that we can understand in our minds. It's already here, is what he's telling us. It's within. It's in the midst of. It's among. It's something so very different in experience than anything else that we attain in life that it's just mind-boggling. And I think maybe until you've experienced some of what he's talking about, this kind of falling into a state of being that you didn't prepare for, you didn't save for, you didn't create it, you didn't manipulate it, you didn't organize it. You just sort of got out of the way. And there it was. When you experience something like that, you're getting the first inkling of what Jesus is talking about in terms of kingdom, but also in terms of this Father's love. See, we've been programmed. The church doesn't teach this way, unfortunately. The church traditionally has taught with fear. The church has taught that, you know, we're really born bad. We're born in original sin. We're born separated from God. And we've got to do something to try to attain reconnection with God. And as soon as you set up the premise that way, as soon as you set up life that way, 
You are doomed to be on the hamster wheel of trying to be good enough. No matter how much we say that we're saved by faith and grace, no matter how much we say that it's a free gift that no one can boast about having attained it, no matter how much we repeat those lines, the reality of our lives is we're still trying to be good enough. We're still trying to attain this acceptance, attain this heaven. And what Jesus is telling us over and over again, in as many ways as he can think of, is that it's just the reverse. We don't start from a place of emptiness. We don't start from a place of separation and try to attain something that will make us whole. We're starting from a place of acceptance and love and fullness already. It's just we have unlearned that. Whatever we knew as children, and this is why Jesus keeps holding up a child as a symbol of kingdom, whatever we knew as children was leached out of us through all of the hurts and the betrayals and the abandonments and everything that happened starting in early childhood. We learned that life didn't work that way. We learned that life doesn't start with a place of fullness and connection. We learned that we have to work for everything that we get. We learned that we have to constantly push the rock up the hill and as soon as we stop, it rolls back down again. We learned that there's no free lunch. But what Jesus is trying to do is to get us and turn that around and say, yes, even though physical life works that way, and works that way for a reason. Their spiritual life is just the opposite. And can you find a way to get that bilingual kind of approach to life? Can you find a way to get that dual citizenship in life? Where even as you continue to push the rock up the hill, as we must, to keep body and soul together, that we can also relax and find that center that we don't work for because it's already here. What if... Heaven is not the end of our journey and it's actually the beginning of our journey. How would that change things for you? How would that change your life if you didn't have to live under the fear of never being connected, under the fear of never having someone there for you at the end of this life to welcome you home, if you didn't have to worry about that? How would it change your moments now? How would the cessation of that fear Change your choices. What would it allow you to do? How would it allow you to let your resources flow through you? How would it change your attitudes? These are profound, profound things that Jesus is trying to get us through. And we normally don't take it to its radical conclusion. We talk about God's love. We talked about being saved by grace. But the reality is we never really move very far from what I've called the suburbs of hell. We're right there always worried about that red glare over the hill. How can that change? How could it change? This is what I think James is driving at here. And this is what we're trying to get. Jesus is telling us this. You know, we've been drilled that we're all sinners. And that's true. Yes, we're all sinners. Yes, we constantly miss the mark. Yes, we constantly fall short of our own expectations and those of others. But what is not true is the conclusion that has been drawn from that. That because we're sinners, from God's point of view, there is a separation. From God's point of view, there is a gulf between us. What Jesus is saying in the good news is that nothing could be further from the truth. From God's point of view, all relationships are always perfect. All relationships are always one. He is oneness. He is unity. He is love. And so how could it be any different? 
The separation that we feel, the separation that we perceive is on our side of the equation, not on his. And until we get that deep enough into our spirits, we will continue to run on that hamster wheel. We will continue to process in fear. And we will continue to need something to medicate our moments. We will continue to need something to paper over the potholes in our walk made out of the fear that we still are subscribing to. Last week, we talked about the man in the mirror. I should say James talked about the man in the mirror. And that was the image of hearing but not assimilating, right? Hearing the word of God, but then walking away and forgetting what you looked like in your reflection, walking away from the hearing of the word and forgetting to do anything about it so that there was no connection, there was no integrity, there was no connection between what was inside and what is outside. Because we're so based in fear, I remember Frank, you told me a story about a pastor that you heard that was interpreting that particular section. And the way he looked at it was, is that the man looked in the mirror and saw the ugliness of his own reflection saw the sinfulness, saw the depravity, saw all that horrible stuff. And then when he walked away, he forgot about that and then continued sinning. But that's interpreted through this lens of fear. That's interpreted through this legal lens. That's not what James is saying. What James is saying is that the man looks into the mirror and sees the reflection as God sees the reflection sees the potential for unity, sees the potential for kingdom and everything that Jesus is talking about, but then walks away and moves back into the fear because that is what's loudest in our ears as we live the days of our lives and the moments of our lives, isn't it? It's all about fear. I mean, just read Facebook. Read the headlines. Everybody's freaking out. I'm a good reason. The world is a scary place, isn't it? You know? Politically, socially, economically, there's all sorts of ugly things going on out there. And if you keep your head in that place, you know, as soon as you walk away from the reflection, these moments that we have, like this morning, are looking in the mirror and seeing the reflection of the real relationship that we have, of who we really are. But as soon as we walk out that door, life reasserts itself, doesn't it? It takes us right back into fear. It takes us right back into old patterns and old habits. It puts us right back on the hamster wheel. Fear makes us insecure, grasping, codependent, envious, feeling ugly. How are we supposed to change? How is this going to happen within us? How can we move from a fear base to a love base? How can we move from fear being the basic reality of our lives, this have-not sensation, to a love base where we realize that everything is already ours. Brenda, can you turn the monitors down a little bit, getting feedback? Thanks. How do we do that? How can we move? How can we move beyond mere belief that these things work in our lives to actually trusting that they do, actually trusting that our journey begins with acceptance and is not a journey for acceptance? Now, what James is telling us is that we move that distance, through the medium of faith. Faith is the medium that takes us from fear to love. Remember those experiments maybe you did as a kid where you hooked up wires to a battery and to a light, you know, and you turn it on? Okay, and then you take one of the leads and you break it and you attach it to two metal paddles and then you stick it in salt water 
Okay? So you, you pull it apart, light's not lit. You put it in salt water, light lights, right? Because the water becomes the medium, the electrified medium through which the current passes and continues on to the light and lights the bulb. Faith is exactly the same way, right? We've got belief on one pole. That's just an idea in your head. I say that I believe. I agree to believe all these principles that Jesus is telling me. You know, but my life looks the same. I'm still living in fear. I'm still running around being obsessive and compulsive and codependent and all those lovely things. But if I stick that pole in the medium of faith, in the water, because the other pole, trust, is already there. Faith is the action that connects belief to trust. See what that makes? See how that makes sense? That's what he's talking about. Faith without works is dead because the works are what give us the day-to-day experiences of the trustworthiness of God's presence. Until we experience something, we don't trust it. You all walked in and just sat down on those chairs. Did you test them first? <laughs> Did you look at the label underneath and make sure it's OSHA approved? No. You just sat down. Why did you do that? Because how many of you have had chairs break out from underneath you? Maybe a couple. But mostly you have, <laughs> mostly you have experience that chairs are built to certain standards and they will hold your weight. And so you just sit down. You don't think about it. And see, here's the thing about trust. Trust is really the felt cessation of fear. Does that make sense to you? Trust is what we have when we stop feeling the fear. Or put another way, trust and anxiety are inversely proportional. As one goes up, the other goes down, right? So you say, hey, I trust God. Well, let me tell, tell me about your life then. Well, oh, it's awful. I'm worried all the time. I just don't know if I'm going to keep my job and, and this... Well, then how in the world do you trust God? If you want to know what your trust level is, look at your anxiety level. If your anxiety is high, if your stress is high, those are all manifestations of fear anyway. If that's high, your trust is low and vice versa. Think about it in terms of people that you know. The people that you trust are the ones you don't worry about. Ever had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, husband or wife, that you didn't trust? What did you do? Hacked into their email account? You know, put a GPS tag on their car and watch where they were going. The people and the things that we think about the most, that we plan for the most, that we worry over the most are the things that we don't trust. Even if we say we know we are saved by grace, but we are always worried about everything that we do, and we're always worried what God may be thinking of us, how in the world is that trust? Through the medium of faith, by putting those paddles in the water of faith, by actually acting on what we say we believe, acting as if it might be true, then we get the confirmation that it actually is. Or not. But we will never know until we put it to the test. We will never know until we actually act on it. This is what James is trying to tell us. The goal is not faith as we understand faith. The goal is not faith as an idea in your head, something that you agree to believe. The goal of faith is trust, where you actually move from a pole of fear to a pole of love. You actually move from mere belief as idea to trust as experience. I said this in here before. Belief is idea. Faith is action. Trust is experience. We move through faith to trust, which is really where we're trying to get. 
I go to Al-Anon meetings. I like my Al-Anon meetings. Often Al-Anon newcomers are talking about the fact that they don't really know how this program works. I suppose any 12-step program is the same. You, know, you come to a 12-step meeting and you re- read approved literature, usually the same passages over and over again every week. And then you have a few other opening pleasantries and then you share. And there's no crosstalk. No crosstalk. You mean I can't ask questions? You mean I'm not going to get answers to my questions? Well, what good is that? You just show up and listen to people cry in their laps and, and tell their stories over and over again and hear the same literature over and How is that going to help me out? You hear this over and over again from newcomers. I was exactly the same way. I got questions I want answered. When are you guys going to answer? Well, you know, you can stay later afterwards and talk to somebody. And then you do that, and the conversations would circle around the airport and never seem to come in for a landing anyway. So where are the answers to my questions that's going to make everything all right? What I started to realize is that it's not designed that way. Twelve-step meetings present the way life presents. Does life give you answers to your questions? If, they, if it does, you know, I want what you're having. <laughs> because life has never answered a single question that I've asked of it. But as I've continued to live it, I've become more and more convinced of certain things. That's been true enough. And that's what Al-Anon or 12-step meetings do. They present like life, but in a concentrated form and on a topic that's relevant to the issues that you have. And if you just keep coming back, you don't get something downloaded into your head that then fixes everything. What you do is you start to get filled up from your toes and it just comes up your body until it finally hits your head. And then you start to realize, oh, that's how this thing works. Because if you want to change any ingrained habit, if you want to change your worldview or anything as basic as your attitudes towards life, you really only have two tools that you can work with. And that's awareness and contrary action, opposite action. That's it. There is no pill. There is no revelation from God that's just going to make everything right. We wish it were so. We wish we could just pray it away and it would be delivered. But really, it's a process. In those meetings, we're practicing awareness. We're getting more and more sensitized to the type of issues and the type of problems that everybody is facing. And then in your real-time moments, when that issue comes up, when that trigger comes up, when that spike comes up, you have been sensitized to be aware that's what this is. Viktor Frankl said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is where you can make your response. You can choose your response. And in the choosing of responses is where we become free and where we become whole people. But without awareness, there is no space between stimulus and response. It's just a knee-jerk reaction. I get triggered, I respond in the way that I have taught myself to respond, in the way that I have taught myself I can survive such situations. But by practicing awareness, we open up that space. And now we can choose differently than we normally would. And over time, the continued choosing differently creates a new normal, erases that particular trigger, that particular button. And this is, what, this is where James is leading. He's trying to take us there. In this passage we're going to read right now, it's a further illustration of the faith and works idea, where it's by works, the action of faith, that we move someplace we really want to go. Let's take a look at James 3, starting at verse 1. Look in your bulletins or look up on the screen. Let not many of you become teachers. 
Got to listen to that one. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Haven't mastered that yet. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come forth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. First of all, this is just great writing. Isn't this wonderful writing? The imagery is so vivid, so compelling. And you know what really strikes me is that every one of these images that he gives us is completely and immediately recognizable, isn't it? We're talking about 2,000 years here of time, and yet everything that he says, bang, it's right there. Now he's talking about bits in horses' mouths and rudders on ships, you know, great ships, small rudder. Now there could be a big difference between what he thought was a great ship and what we think is a great ship at this point, but that's just technology, you know? The principle is still exactly the same. And that idea of fires being start from a, from a small source, boy, here in California, we can relate to that, can't we? But I still remember, was it 10 or 12 years ago? Wildfire was started by an errant campfire somewhere around Silverado, Majesca, and that thing just roared right down the, and jumped the 241 and was heading right for our house. And I'll never forget that afternoon Jamming home from work, I think I was one of the last few to get through before they blocked off Oso Parkway. And here we are, Marion and I, just packing our cars with everything. And you've got to choose. What do we want to take? What do we leave for the fire? And we could see the flames over the last hill, and the whole sky was covered with this, this uh, smoke. And, and you're just waiting for the call to come to evacuate, or not. Now, for us, it didn't come. The fire was diverted, put down. But to think that that whole thing, that whole roaring freight train that's coming at you, and it seems like nothing can stop it, was started by someone's campfire. Just a little spark. You could put it out with your foot. It's almost like chaos theory. You know chaos theory? That tells you that small changes in input give you huge changes in output. So if the butterfly flaps its wing and is in Peking, you have a snowstorm in New York City. That's the shorthand. 
It's the way scientists are now measuring complex systems like weather and politics and stuff because nothing else makes any sense. You know, in politics, nothing makes sense, I think. It must be chaos. But at any rate, it's like that. What he's trying to tell us is, here's this little rudder. Here's this little bit. Here's this little spark. And yet it hugely impacts so many people. And here's this little tongue that changes things so greatly. Now, the tongue itself is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for whatever is written on our hearts, right? That's really what he's talking about here. The tongue is the metaphor, the symbol of our character, who we really are. This is what he's trying to get us to understand. How can you know a person's heart? How do we do that? How do we look inside and and see a person's heart? All we really know is what comes out of their mouths. But what comes out of their mouths in unguarded moments is really insightful, isn't it? Some people say you should always watch how people treat subordinates to really get a sense of who they are. Watch them in unguarded moments. But this is what he's saying. This is what James is trying to tell us. You know, the tongue unbridled. The tongue is giving us a sense of who the person inside is. Jesus backs this up. I should say Jesus first gave us the idea here when what his religious authorities of his time, they were all about the law. They were all about the ritual. They were all about their purity codes and their dietary codes and what you ate could make you unclean. And Jesus says, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Come on, let's be real here. What comes out? Watch that. Now James says the tongue boasts, you know, of great things. And we think of it as the tongue bragging of great things, which would make certain kind of sense, especially in in our thinking But I think what he's really driving in here is that there's a secondary meaning of boast. It means to possess something. Have you heard, like in a a news report, you know, the city now boasts a brand new stadium. Ever heard that kind of, you know, configuration? It means that the city possesses one, but possesses it with pride, right? It can mean to have or to contain. This room boasts only about 100 chairs. We could say that. That we have or contain about 100 chairs. The tongue in the same way boasts, the tongue in the same way possesses effects far beyond its small size. And I really think that's what James is trying to get us, that there's great influence in the tongue for better or for worse. That's why be careful if you're a teacher. We have the ability to do great harm and great good because of the tongue, because of what we say. So, Just as faith is revealed by works, faith isn't created by works, faith is the works. The works we do are the faith. It's the medium, remember? Between belief and trust, between fear and love. It's the works that we do, that we continue to move consistently, regardless of evidence, regardless of challenges. So just as faith is revealed by the works, the heart, the inner person, The character, the essence of a person is revealed by the tongue. And this is a familiar theme in both Jesus and James. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? We're going to be talking, here comes Easter, right? Can you believe it? Easter's already coming. Here comes Easter. So Passion Week, we have the cleansing of the temple juxtaposed right next to, you know, just adjacent passages, the cursing of the fig tree. Now, the cursing of the fig tree was always a weird one for me. Does that sound weird to you? Jesus sees a fig tree. It's all lush and full of leaves and verdant and looks like it would really have lots of fruit on it. But it's not the season for figs. 
And so Jesus sees the tree and he's hungry. He goes up to the tree, finds out it has no figs, and he curses it. Walks away, and depending on what version you read, either it withers immediately or the next day they come back and it's all withered. Why curse the poor tree? It's not the season for figs. What's the problem here? Why would Jesus do that? But that incident happens right after the cleansing of the temple. And you walk up to the temple and here's this magnificent edifice and these white walls and all of this immense beauty and majesty. And you walk inside and it's full of money changers and people who have reduced what the temple stood for to mere profit, to greed, to avarice. And so what the lesson here is, is that certain things can appear somehow on the outside, but the inside is very different. There is no integrity. The inside does not match the outside. And in Jewish thinking, that's what this idea of kingdom was all about. In Jesus' thinking, kingdom was all about the integrity between the interior and the exterior, that the committee inside was matching the committee outside, that whatever you felt inside was reflected into the community. And where these things did not line up, Jesus wasn't so much cursing the fig tree as revealing its inner nature. It had no power to nourish. It had no power to preserve life. The temple system was exactly the same. It no longer had the power to nourish. It no longer had the power to preserve life. It had become a den of thieves. It had become an albatross, you know, a millstone around the neck of the people and no longer nourished their spiritual life. Same thing James is getting across here. We may appear okay on the outside, But the tongue is going to reveal the inner nature. The interior and the exterior must be integrated if we're going to enter kingdom. Now, is James just giving us a bunch of new rules to follow? Is that what's happening here? Great. I got the Ten Commandments. I got this. I got that. I got what my church says. Now I got to watch my tongue too. I mean, how much more can I take? How much more can I think about as I go through life? Now he's sort of doing that. He's telling us to watch our tongue. But it's so important for us to realize we can't be looking at this through a legal lens. As soon as we look at it through a legal lens, we're going to see the wrong things and we're going to move in the wrong direction. As soon as we look at this through a legal lens, we're back at the fear, back at the hamster wheel, trying to be good enough, trying to follow the code well enough so that we can be accepted. But this is not where James or Jesus are coming from. Because like faith and works, it's not an outside-in transformation. Transformation never works from the outside in. The only thing you can do is comply, conform from the outside in. And you may look verdant and lovely, but if nothing has happened inside, you won't have any fruit. You see? And your tongue will reveal your inner nature. It comes out. It just does. If we're living in fear, that's the way it's going to work. Transformation always works from the inside out. And this is what we're trying to get at. You can't tame the tongue until you tame the heart first. It's the only way this works. That means that we need to transform from the inside out, from fear to love. A few years ago, there was a story about a pastor, a very famous pastor, got on a plane and didn't get exactly what he wanted in exactly the time frame that he wanted it and had an absolute meltdown. It was a kind of, do you know who I am kind of moment where he just ranted and raved so much that they actually had to escort him off the plane. You know, Didn't quite comport with his public persona. It was one of those revealing moments. 
What's really going on inside a person when such a thing can happen? Now, I remember in high school, one of the monks teaching me that any man or woman is capable of the utmost folly at any given moment. And I truly believe that. We can all have bad days. We can all have meltdowns. But the more that we move along this, this journey, this way, the more we are transformed from the inside out, the less likely that that's going to happen. And the more likely that there's going to be that awareness between the stimulus and the response that will allow us to make a different direction or at least to catch ourselves quickly enough that we can make amends and then move on. Those moments pull back the curtain. (coughs) They shock us because they're so out of character. But James says that everyone stumbles. Every man is capable of that utmost folly. So from the same tongue comes blessing and curses because we're not yet integrated. I remember hearing, you know, someone who has a potty mouth and someone looks over and says, do you eat with that mouth? You know, it's kind of like that. These both things are coming out the stream, are coming out at the same time. If we're not transformed, that's what's going to happen. And he uses all these great images about fountains. You know, you can't get fresh and bitter water out of a from the same opening in a fountain. Fig trees are not going to give you olives, right? And vines aren't going to give you figs. And salt water isn't going to give you fresh. He's trying to get us to understand that like produces like. It doesn't work any other way. This is why it is so counterproductive to try to use fear to drive us into the arms of a loving God. It's not going to work. Fear produces more fear. Only love can produce love. And we have to understand that the means that we use must match the ends that we seek. Put that on your fridge. The means that we use must match the ends that we seek because nothing else is going to get us where we want to go. I want to read you a little selection from a book called The Last Ghost Dance by Brooke Medicine Eagle, obviously a Native American. But listen how she develops this. No sooner do we think about choosing this pathway of change than we come to realize that it will take our attention and energy away from other things going on in our lives. And bottom line, it may cost time, effort, and money. It means we're going to face all of our beliefs about security and about what we need to do to have life truly work for us. What a contrast with the prevailing notion, which looks perfectly reasonable since we've all bought into it and play that game that we dash about, work hard, make money, invest it for the future, and so forth. To take time for silence, to focus attention on clearing our outmoded habits and patterns, to change our diet, to perhaps pay others for help in clearing our emotions and restoring physical health and energy, to spend time in nature regularly. These things mean a major shift in our priorities. We can't just take a pill and have these things change automatically. The most important lesson in the entire process is that the method you use to transform yourself must have the same quality as the end you seek. In other words, you can't dash wildly about to create peace in your life, although we've all tried that. If I can just get this and this and this done, then I can sit down and have some quiet time. You know as well as I do that it doesn't work that way. Instead, try stopping for a moment, taking a few deep breaths, Intoning softly to yourself, I am a peaceful person with plenty of time to accomplish all that needs to be done. This will create a much more this will create much more peace in the long run than frantic hurrying to complete all your tasks. Becoming what we want to create for the future is the challenge we have in every moment. 
What we wish to accomplish is to create quality in the process rather than thinking of it only as an end product. That is so huge. What we wish to accomplish is to create quality in the process rather than thinking of it only as an end product. That is what is meant by not lusting after outcomes. We must break the fearful cycle that pushes us to try to make things okay. Someone once told me something most helpful. Fear says, come to me, I will make you safe. While love simply says, you are safe. We must learn to proceed from trust rather than anxiety. A good exercise is to examine any moment in your life and get down to what is motivating you. Simply notice how much you base every decision on some fear. Logical as it may seem, I need to go to work because I'm afraid if I, I'll lose my job if I don't. If I lose my job, I'm afraid I won't get another easily. Good jobs are hard to come by. If I can't find another job, how will I take care of my family? I hear stories every day of middle-class people who have lost their homes and end up living in their cars, and on and on it goes. Even if you can't suddenly leave your job and find your true calling, then change the way you think about your job. Question the fear motivations and practice transforming them in the moment. I'm going to work because I like to support my family. I can make a difference right where I am. As I bring my knowledge and skills and truth more fully into my everyday life, I am moving toward more and more appropriate work. Opportunities to do what I would most like to do are opening up each day. I intend to have a fabulous day today. to feel good, and to do something good for others. The news is that the inner experience comes first. This, in turn, is what eventually creates what happens externally. Do you see how it gets turned around? It exactly mirrors what Jesus is trying to get across to us. The means we use must match the ends that we seek. The only way that we will ever be able to use awareness and opposite action to create this new normal, to move from this fear pole to the love pole, to truly be transformed from the inside out, is as we experience the basic reality of our lives. That heaven is not the end of the journey, that heaven is the beginning of the journey. And James is echoing the same concept. Take a look at uh, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, James is being very CBT here, cognitive behavioral therapy. (laughs) I want to think about those of you who don't know what cognitive behavioral therapy is, you know, We all agree that the traumas of the past have created the problems in our present. 
And psychodynamic therapy wants to go back to the past and try to un- understand all that, bring it up to the surface, diagnose it, and deal with it so that your present can become changed. Cognitive behavioral says, let's just change the behavior. Let's just start looking at different ways of understanding our thinking and move forward with that. By changing the patterns in the present, we can heal the past. It's a different way of doing things. And, you know, obviously both are needed. But James is much more cognitive behavioral here. What he's trying to tell us is regardless of the trigger, regardless of the emotion, whether it's jealousy or ambition or any of the myriad things that we can be feeling, act as if, move as if you're already accepted and loved. Act as if this word from above is really true. This word of God, remember? This all that God is, this essence of God that you have been taught, that you are starting to understand, act as if it's already true. Because you can't look for unity. You can't look for peace without first being unified, both in thought and in action, which will take you to the trust. Don't worry about your feelings right now. They will come later. Work on the thoughts, work on the actions. Act your way into right thinking. Think your way into right action. Just move forward in faith and see where that takes you. I've told some of you the story before. When I first said the sinner's prayer in an evangelical church up the road here, I said it with my pastor off in a side room, and he got up to leave as soon as he led me through the prayer. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What just happened here? I don't feel a thing. What's going on? And I don't know, I don't know what I'm not sure what I expected, but I expected something, you know, and he's ready to leave. And he comes back, and he didn't exactly check his watch, but he comes back and he sits down beside me. He says, look, fact is you've given your heart to Jesus. Feelings will come later. And he was gone. <laughs> Doors slowly swinging shut. And I thought it was a little terse at the time, but you know what? He was right. Absolutely right. You start moving first. If you're waiting to feel differently before you take the next step, you're going to be sitting on that couch for a really long time. Get up and move. Chart a course and go. By your best lights, make a decision. Move. Because you're going to be feeling that jealousy and that ambition and all those fear-motivated things and triggers for a long time. As you practice awareness and opposite action, they will fade. They will go away as your trust starts to mount. All of those other things will dissipate, but only if you keep moving in faith. Move forward as if these things are already true. It's the only way that we can do this. Now, that seems like a catch-22, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem like one? You know, I can't work for unity until I'm first unified, right? but I can't be unified until I work for unity. And aren't I set up for failure here? How is this going to actually work? Well, you know what? It would be a catch-22 if we really didn't have unity, peace, acceptance, love, or heaven now. Because if those things didn't exist within, then trying to get them without first having them is the catch-22. But the good news is, what Jesus and James are trying to tell us, they already are here. It's not about acquiring something you don't have. It's about stripping away all the false information, all the hurts and trauma, and all the junk that has blinded us from the truth. 
And the truth is, the journey begins with heaven. It doesn't end with heaven. It changes everything. Living as if heaven is here, heaven is now, reveals heaven to us. Reveals God's presence to us. One last story before we go. A woman contacted me several years ago now. But she was having trouble blending her families. She had uh, married a husband. She had two children from a previous marriage. And he had a big black lab named Tucker. (laughs) And so we're trying to integrate the kids, blend the kids, blend the dog. And it just wasn't working. And the dog is something that she was not used to. She's not a dog person. This thing is huge. The husband is off working all day and was traveling a lot. And she's got the dog and the kids. She's getting a lot of resentment here because this dog was big and smelly. And it shed all the time. And it was starting to really drive her crazy. So one day she just decided, you know what, I've got to do something here. She puts the dog in the shower. She gets in the shower with him. And she hoses him down. And she's in there and he's shaking and all the stuff's going on. And that dog was having the time of his life. Look at the dog in your bulletins and maybe that'll give you a little bit of idea how happy this dog was to be in that shower getting hosed down. And darn if after the dog was showered, if he didn't smell a little better, if he didn't shed a little less, if he didn't start following her around the house, you know, and then she decided, oh, we need to do this every week. And darn if she didn't start to actually love that dog. All she had to do was get in the shower and act as if She really liked that dog. And after time, she really did like that dog. This is life. Guard your tongue. Why? Because James tells you to? No. Because if you start speaking as if you were already loved and accepted, the transformation is already beginning from the inside out. It will transform you in the doing not because you checked off another box on the to-do list, not because you got a brownie point from God, but because you are now practicing life as if the basis of reality is true and you will find out that it is. Just enough awareness to ask, act as if you love that dog is all you need and then you find out that you do. Act as if you're already loved and accepted and you'll find out that you already are. The good news is really good. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. There's no more rules to follow at this point. Just act as if. Start with heaven as the beginning point of your journey, as the basic reality of life, and you'll find out that it really is. Let's pray. Father, it just seems too good to be true and that's part of the problem we know that you understand this but help us with it it is so hard for us to just get fearless enough for just a moment to take that first step but that's all we need just help us get into the shower with the dog help us to take that first step and find out that it's not as scary as we thought help us father We're fragile and we're weak and we're afraid, but we know that you understand. We are powerless. Our lives have become unmanageable. But in you is everything that we need and everything is already here. And we're going to stand on that promise that you've already given us everything since the beginning of time. 
And all we have to do is accept. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, Lord. Help us never to forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.